Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Thank you so much for coming this morning. I, I know that uh, it's always a challenge, I think, Sunday morning to make your way to church, to kind of get the kids ready, to get them up, and pretend everybody's happy to come on a Sunday morning, but we're so thankful to have you here. I also want to give a shout out and a welcome to those who are actually joining us online uh, this morning. And so from wherever you may be watching, we are glad to have you here this morning. If this is your first time, or maybe the first time in a very long time, as Pastor Dave said, we're just really delighted to have uh, a guest in our home. And um, I always like to let people know, new people know, what we're all about. And uh, we try to keep the main thing, the main thing around here, and that is to connect people to Jesus and to one another. Like, we really do believe this, that the most important relationship any man, woman, a boy or girl can have is a relationship with Jesus. And we just think life is better when you do it together. And so we try to stay laser-focused on that. And so, uh, welcome to everybody. Listen, this morning we are starting a brand new series. We're calling it Every Day. We're going to be making our way through the book of James. It's five chapters, 108 verses, and 54 imperatives are given in the book of James. Uh, if you know the English language, an imperative is a command. It seems as though James is not good at giving just suggestions. He's not that concerned about what you and I think. But he's really uh, direct with us. And at times, when we're making our way through the book of James, you're going to find that it stings a little bit. In fact, I've been stung a couple times this week as I've been making my way through the book. The book is all about faith and works. Actually, it's about faith that works. It's such a practical book. It's a book about everyday Life And in this book, James is going to lay out all of his cards on the table and say, faith is something that ought to be part of our everyday life. Faith isn't just relegated to Sundays. And faith ought to be part of our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday and our Thursday and our Friday and our Saturday. Faith ought to make a difference in our life. And, and as we make our way through the book of James, you are going to notice that James wants to deal with function not just theory. He's going to be more concerned about our walk than our talk. Uh, it's your demonstration, not your declaration, that he's going to be talking about. And he's going to challenge us to let people see our commitment and not just listen to our conversation. So let's dive right into the book, the book of James. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there or some kind of electronic device. If the Bible's still fairly new to you, still learning how to navigate it, James is almost at the end of the Bible. It's Revelation's the last book. Go back a few pages, and you will come to the book of James. James chapter 1, starting right at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Let's just stop right there. It would be so easy to kind of just skip over that verse, by the way. You know, it's kind of like the introduction verse, and we think, well, it's not that important. I just want to get to the, to the meat of the matter. I want to know what James has to say about living out my faith every single day. Let's get beyond the introduction. Let's kind of move on, Donald, because really, what does verse 1 have anything to do with me living in 2018? 
I know I am tempted to do that because every time I get a new book, I never read the preface. I never read the introduction. I never read anything about the author. I just want to get right to chapter one. So that's my tendency. But I think if we skip over verse one, we're going to miss out on a lot. So we're going to camp out right here at verse one for a little while this morning. Right off the bat, we find out who the author of the book is. It's James. And at first, honestly, when you read the book, it's, it's kind of strange that a book would be called after the author. I mean, if I wrote a book and called it Donald, you would think I'm a little egotistical. Wow, naming a book after your own name. And yet, so when you first look at this, it kind of seems a little strange. I mean, the Apostle Paul doesn't have any book name after him, and he's got 13 books that he's written. But most of the books that James or Paul writes, to, of course, are churches. You know, the church in Corinth, the church in Philippi, uh, the church in Ephesus. And, and so James is writing not to a church, not to anyone specifically. And so we, we, the book is just called James. And, and he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered among the nations. And the reason that they have been scattered is because great persecution has come on to the church. And he's writing to Christians who are trying to live out their faith in a tumultuous world, in a world that is compromising, in a world that is so confusing at times, a world that is so chaotic at times, really much like the world that you and I live in today. And that's who James is writing. Now, before we go too far, like, who is this James? And honestly, what is his story? Well, there's four different James mentioned in the New Testament, and we won't go through all the details, but scholars all believe this to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. And maybe you're going to be shocked this morning. What? Jesus has brothers? Where did that come from? Well, you know, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, uh, Jesus is teaching, and, and, and people are marveling at his teaching, and he comes to his hometown, and people are like, where did this wisdom come from, the, these miraculous things that he's doing? Is, is that not the... The carpenter's son? Is that not, is not his mother Mary? That's in, in Matthew 13, 55. Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And do not his sisters live among us? And this is, this is James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. They have something in common. It's their mother. And James and Jesus grow up together. Maybe they share the same bedroom. I, I, I don't know. But they, they grew up under the same roof. Now, can you imagine the, the pressure on a younger brother to live up to the older brother? James, come on. Why can't you pick up your clothes like your older brother Jesus? Why can't you be on time for mealtime like your older brother Jesus? Why am I always tripping over your sandals when I come to the door? Your older brother Jesus doesn't leave his sandals by the door. A lot of pressure, and you can imagine maybe there's even a little bit of animosity that James has toward his older brother. And then Jesus grows up and grows older, and he starts his ministry at the age of, of 30. And he makes some incredible claims that actually the Bible says it embarrasses his family. That's what it says. And, and, and the claim is that he is the son of God, and James will have nothing to do with it, because he said, I don't believe that. I don't believe what my brother is saying, that he is the son of God. You think there's pressure trying to pick up your clothes. Now the pressure of like, oh, i got to live up to that standard. My brother now claims to be the son of God. And James's story starts a lot like our story, in disbelief. A 
place of doubt, a place of questions. I mean, uh, James is the half-brother, and he doesn't even believe what his brother is saying, that he is the Son of God. In fact, it gets so bad that in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that his family came to take charge of Jesus, and I'm going to quote what the Scripture says, because they thought he was out of his mind. That's what James and, 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 the, and some of the family members thought. Jesus is crazy. He should be institutionalized. Like the claims that he is making, this is James. So here is James, the author of a book of the Bible, who's saying we got to do something about that brother of ours who's claiming to be the son of God. He's out of his mind. He's crazy. And James' story really does begin where our story begins. It just begins with doubt. I'm not too sure Jesus is who he says he is because I got questions I'm a little confused at some of these claims. But then something happens with James because everything changes in his life. After the Jesus rises from the dead, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 7, it says that Jesus appeared to his brother James. And it was at that moment that James finally realized that Jesus was who he said he was. His doubts and his questions began to transition into faith. Do you not find that interesting that a man who most of his life was a doubter is an author of a book about faith? Just another reminder that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. Maybe somebody needed to hear that this morning. God can use anyone. And here's a doubter now who is an author of Scripture. And so when you read this, you go, James, you think, why doesn't he use his connections? Why doesn't he say, James, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I have something to say. I'm important. I know this guy. But James doesn't do that. He uh, He doesn't brag about his connections. No, he just comes to understand that Jesus is not just his half brother. He is actually the Lord of his life. And James has a completely different understanding who Jesus is. He is God. And James recognizes that at the resurrection. So you got the picture, right? You got James, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't believe a word that Jesus is saying. He tried to have him institutionalized. And then what changes things? What caused his doubting to go from doubting to believing? It was the resurrection, and it changed everything. Just a few days earlier, I mean, his, his brother was being crucified, and I'm sure in his mind he kept thinking, it didn't have to end this way. But he was crazy enough to go to the cross. And yet it's just a few days later that everything changes. And nothing can change a man around than an encounter with a resurrected Christ. That will change anyone. It was the resurrection of Jesus that set everything aside for him in his mind as to who Jesus was. And really, that's what sets Christianity aside from all other religion, is the resurrected Savior. It will turn any man inside out. It will cause any woman to reconsider everything that she thought was the meaning of life. And that is what captured the mind of James. And then James becomes this very commanding, influential 
figure in the early church, and he had enemies, just like his brother Jesus. He had enemies who wanted him dead. And history tells us that James was grabbed by a mob of people, and they threw him off the temple mound. And when he hit the ground, it did not kill him. And so history tells us that men gathered with sticks and just began to beat him. And enough beating to the head, he finally died. But we're also told, uh, tradition and history says that as he was being, um, he was praying for his accusers, his betrayers, the mob who was uh, causing so much pain, uh, as they were carrying out the orders to kill him, he was praying for them. And that's one of the reasons he's been given the nickname Camel Knees. James is known to be a man of prayer all through his life. And this book is written in the 40s, not the 1940s, not the 1840s, not 1,040. There are no numbers in front of the 40. It's just 40s. It's just a, a few years after the resurrection of Christ. This is the oldest book in the New Testament, the book of James, and is written shortly after the martyr of Stephen and the persecution of the church. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul, who we love to read his, uh, the, the scriptures that he wrote through the Holy Spirit, he's the one who, one of the main people who began the persecution of the church, because, because before he became Paul, he was Saul, and Saul demi had a demise against the church, and he wanted to stamp it out and wipe it out. This is, but then Saul had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, and guess what? His whole life changed. And he became the Apostle Paul. So this book is written after the martyr of Stephen, who Paul authorized for him to be stoned, the first martyr that is recorded for us. And then, of course, the church just scatters. And for those of you who have had the opportunity to read through the book of Acts, you know it's a record of how the early church began, began and you discover that the church actually was exploding. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, uh, Peter is preaching this really fiery message. We know it's the day of Pentecost. He's preaching, and it says 3,000 people came to Christ on that day. Can you imagine? 3,000. Then it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, that there was another fiery message, and it said 5,000 men, men, turned their lives over to Jesus. The church was exploding in numbers. It was hard for people to even keep up with all that was happening. And some would conservatively say, scholars would say, probably during this period of time, there's somewhere between 18 and 25,000 Christians living in Jerusalem at the church, and living in Jerusalem, the church there. And the church is thriving, and it seems God's just kind of pouring his favor on the church, and then guess what happens? Persecution breaks out. And Christians who were living in Jerusalem, they flee the city, and they go to all parts of the world. And James is writing to those believers who are, have been scattered everywhere. Now, when you think of the 12 tribes, it says, you know, to the 12 tribes that are scattered, when you think of the 12 tribes, you, well, you immediately think of Israel. You know, James is writing to these Christian Jews who have been scattered, but it's not just the Christian Jews. It's, he's writing to all those Christians who have made the decision and understand that God is the one who holds their salvation. The book has something for all of us, by the way. That's what I love about this book. It's so practical. It meets us where we are. It gets down to the nitty-gritty, and there will be something in this book that will reach you where you are today. 
right at the very beginning, uh, James is going to be talking about trials in your life, tribulations, testings. You find yourself in a trial today? (laughs) Maybe this is what's going to connect with you. Uh, Maybe it's going to be this week. Uh, Maybe it's going to be next month. You get that phone call, and all of a sudden, you feel like you're in the trial of your life, the testing of your faith. And James has something to say about that. And then James is going to be talking about, hey, you find yourself stuck in a sin, you can't break loose, you can't shake free of it. James has a word for you. And James is also going to talk about trials and, and uh, testings and temptations, and he's going to make sure that we, we understand, don't get them confused. God does not tempt you to sin. When you sin, it's because you want it to sin. That's the reality. And James is going to be talking about, hey, you got some money problems? There's more bills than there are money at the end of the month? James has a word to say about that. I wonder if there's someone here this morning who has a problem with their tongue. Can't control maybe their temper. You know, maybe you're just so angry at your parents. You're so angry at your boss. You're so angry at your ex-spouse. And, and James has a, a word about that. You know, maybe you think you're hurting yourself or hurting someone else, but actually, by holding on to the anger, you hurt yourself. Uh, James is going to talk about racism. You know, maybe there are some that are struggling with thinking that they're far better, their race is better than another race, or their culture is better, or their economic status makes them better, more superior. James is actually going to address that issue about favoritism. He has a word to say about that. James is also going to talk about, you know, there are actually some people in the church, he's going to say, that are quite selfish. That actually, they just kind of think about themselves. They can't get their eyes off themselves. James has a word to say. James is going to talk about jealousy. You know, how that creeps up, even in the church and amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm jealous. Why does that person get to play the guitar up front and no one asked me to play? And as I said, he'll talk about the tongue, controlling the tongue. It is a key issue in Christianity. He's going to talk about secular Christians. You know, the natural man, as Aretha Franklin said, the natural woman. You know, seeking wisdom from the world and not from God. He's going to be talking about conflicts because the fact is a church this size, you know there's going to be conflicts among us. He's going to be talking about pride. And how short life is, and don't be consumed with it. He's going to be talking about being impatient. He's going to be talking about complaining. He's going to be talking about what do you do when you're sick. Like, this book is going to reach all of us. It gets to the nitty-gritty. There are no pretenses in this book that we're going to be studying through. And so when he says the book is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, I personally believe it can be applied to the church because he's talking about spiritual maturity in your faith. He's talking about progress, not perfection, by the way. We're, we're never going to be perfect, but there should be progress in our life. Growing old doesn't mean growing up. And the thing is, some of us are dealing with some things in our life the same way that we did 25 years ago. 
Like there's no difference in our life. We've made no progress. And James says, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's not spiritual maturity. We ought to be handling life differently today than we did 20 years ago as a follower of Jesus. I think one of the key verses is going to be verse 19. It says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. If we're always talking, we can't hear, can we? We're not learning if we're always talking. I remember my aunt as a little boy one time saying to me, you know, Donald, the tongue is like a wild animal, and it's the only member of the body that God put in a cage. (laughs) So keep that cage locked up. That's what God gave us, right? Two ears, but only one mouth. But I do think the theme of the book is going to be verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Do what it says. Don't just be a listener, a hearer, but actually be a doer. Now, we, we call this the book of James. But in reality, it's, it's a letter. It's a letter that has been written to Christians who have fled for their lives, who are being persecuted, and they have scattered among all the nations. And, and, and as soon as the church would receive this letter, the pastor would call people, the church would gather together, and they would read this letter to the congregation. There wasn't multiple copies, so a, a, a congregation would get it, and they would read it. They'd probably read it multiple times before it got passed on to another congregation. And, 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 and as they would read, people would listen. They'd be hanging on every word. And it would not be read the way that we read it today. We read the book of James, and, well, here we are 30 minutes later, and we're still on verse 1. That is not what would have happened in the early church. They would have read it like it was a letter. And, and I thought, you know what I like to do? I've never done this before, by the way. I thought, I want to go old school. Let's go old school. Not 1960s, not the 1940s. Let's go back to what it would have been like when they received this letter. When believers would be, would be just hanging on every word as to what was being said. And as we read this, I want you to realize the church, the early church, is really much like what we are today. They're, cha- they're train wrecks like we are. Sometimes we think of the early church, we, we romanticize it, we have this ideal of what the early church was like. But I'm telling you, you read through the New Testament, you realize the early church had just as many problems as we did. They had women who were gossiping and being divisive with each other. There were men who were living double lives, being one thing at the synagogue and something different at the workplace. The church was filled as well with rebellious teenagers. So as this letter was being written, that's the congregation. That's the group. That's the local church that that it was being read to. And so... This morning, that's what I like to do. Now, everything tells me, don't do that. Don't read this like a letter, because people have short attention spans in 2018. Nobody's going to be able to just listen for 13 minutes while you read a letter. 
You should know better than that, Donald. Well, I'm going to go against that. And you say, but Donald, you know better. What I'd like to do is, I'd like to read this like a letter. So what I'd like to ask you to do is actually close your Bibles. Because when this was read, nobody would have had a copy of it. It would have just been read. And people would listen to what was being said. And really, this letter is being addressed even to us as Christians. Ultimately, the, 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 the original um, recipients were those scattered Christians among the world. But just picture this book being written to the church in Sarnia. And this is James talking to us. And, and he's going to tell us that faith should always be moving forward. That faith is not about perfection, but it is about progress. We should be growing in our faith. And I know, because I'm guilty, I know we have constant pulls to the world. I know that. I know I read about the tongue, I'm like, oh, I say something, I go, Donald, you know better than that. It's that constant pull. Like, I know, I know nice things don't satisfy, but I have, I, I'm, a, I have this, uh, I'm a grab by those things. Like, oh, if I just had that, I'd be so much happier, so much more satisfied. Why do I fall for that? I have this constant um, pulling towards those things, and the world tries to sell what really doesn't satisfy, and it always soft sells what really does satisfy. There's always going to be a pull on us. Always. If, you, if you're 55 or 105, you will always have the pull. And that's why it's not about perfection. It's going to be about progress in your faith. Are you growing? Are, are you maturing? Are you different than you were last year? Are you different than you were 10 years ago? Because that's, that's, that's maturing in your faith. So if you will, if I could have your attention just for about the next 13 minutes, I would like to read this entire letter to you. And I believe any time, any time God's word is read, there's a blessing. So let me read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, 
because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When you are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard by doing it, he will be blessed by what he does. If anyone considers him religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. And his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows and their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. I mean, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, and say to the poor man, well, you stand there, you can sit by my stool at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you commit murder, have you not become a lawbreaker? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law and give freedom because judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. But what good is it, my brother, if man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? I mean, suppose a brother or a sister is well clothes and daily food. If one of you say to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, and if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, well, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. That's great. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deads is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by just faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is to be a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to, take, to make them obey us, we, we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and it's itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or grape vine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds, done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What is causing fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your own desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says, without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intently, intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go do this or that in the city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. I mean, what is your life? It's like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it is sin. Now listen. You rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not even opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. And the judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. If any, of you, if any one of you are in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders. 
of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and it is effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sin. That is the letter that was written to Christians living in a tumultuous world. This is the book that was written to us living in a tumultuous, confusing world. And when you read through this book, you cannot help but notice that trials and, and suffering and difficulties can be expected. They, they do not surprise God. God never goes, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. Whoops, I missed that. Some people are tempted to say, because, because I'm, I'm in a trial or I'm in a difficulty of my life, God therefore must not be for me. The greatest evidence that God is for you is the cross of Christ. That is the greatest evidence that he is for you. He is not against you. But he does use difficult times in our life to grow us up. Christ came and he died and he rose again to rescue you, to ransom our soul from death. God is for us he has never abandoned us. The book of James is our Heavenly Father's way of saying the way to joy, the way to peace, the way to fullness of life, it's this way. Like, I know you're going that way, and it's like, no, 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 don't go that way. That, that, that's just going to lead to a lot of heartache. No, 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 don't go that way. There's problems that way. He lays out to us how to live a life that is full. Now, James has personally already exposed a couple areas of my own life this week. As I said earlier, like sometimes my tongue gets the best of me. A couple times this week, I wanted to say something so bad. And I came so close. And I remember saying, Donald, did you forget what you read? forget. I don't know why I fall for some of the things that I do when I know better. I feel like as I'm reading, it's like James, no, 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 Donald, don't, 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 Donald, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Donald, honestly, that will lead you to heartache. Don't fall that way. I know sometimes people say, well, God doesn't really know what I'm going through. Really? The God of the universe doesn't know what you're going through. He does. If you're a child of his, he loves you. This is an invitation of James to a fullness of life. Right? Jesus didn't come to rob us of life. He came to give it to us and give it to us more abundantly. It's the thief that who comes to steal and to rob. But Jesus has come to give us life. 
and life more abundantly. abundantly. And that is what James is going to lay out for us for the next number of weeks as we go through this book. We're going to hit where the rubber meets the road. He's going to really get right to the heart of the matter, and sometimes it's going to sting. And sometimes it's going to hurt. Because as you read through the book, this book is full of punches. <laughs> Left and a right. And I'm like, oh, oh. But then I realized it's all, for, it's all for me. So I could know what it is to live the fullness of life in Christ and not follow my own way. So I hope that you'll join us on this journey for the next couple of weeks. I hope you'll come back next week as we dive into this whole area of trial, something that all of us know have had to live through, are living through, or will live through. And so with that, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for our time together. Lord, thank you that even as we read your word, there is a, a blessing, I believe, that comes from just hearing the word of God read. I thank you for this book, the book of James, a practical, down-to-earth book that is going to challenge each one of us, myself included, what it is to have a faith that works. And so God, I pray over these next number of weeks that will be true for each one of us, that will be, that will gravitate toward, towards what it is to have a fullness of life. Now Lord, this morning, maybe as we have gathered here, it is possible it's probably likely that there would be people among us here that sit that actually don't know who you are. James says he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we know there would be people here that, that don't know you that way. It's possible they know things about you. It's possible they've come to church all their life, but they don't know you. Maybe their, their story starts very much like James, doubters, have lots of questions. Seems crazy what Jesus is saying. But Lord, then we look at a man like James, how his life was radically changed because he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And God, we, would, we believe there's probably people here this morning that need to have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And so, God, we pray that this morning you would be so kind and so gracious and so compassionate that you would literally open their eyes to see you and who you are. Not just the Savior of the world, but their personal Savior. That you came and you died for them. So, God, do a, do a work among us. And then, God, of course... In a room like this, with this many people, there are people who are hurting. There are people that right now are in the middle of a trial, and they almost want to throw their hands up and go, I, I can't do this anymore. God, whisper into their ear this morning. Reassure them you have not abandoned them. Remind us of the greatest evidence that you are for us. Because you went to the cross, you died and you bled. You suffered, you were buried, but then you rose again for us. Lord, for that brother or sister who's struggling, remind them of that powerful truth in their life today. Meet them where they are, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.